Welcome to Taiwan Noir, the podcast on Fire Network series on Taiwanese cinema. My name is Kennedy, and I doubt we'll be getting into any Edward Yang, Ang Lee, Huao Xiaoxian movies on this show. Not that I'm dismissing those gentlemen's contribution to Taiwanese cinema, but my flame burns for the late 70s and early 80s uh, uh, type of movies, and they could maybe should be referred to as Taiwan Black Movies throughout this series. Uh, it's a lazy label, but uh, I probably will end up uh, doing so. I'll explain why in a little bit. I really live for, it turns out, neglected Taiwanese cinema in general, like acclaimed or otherwise. I like class and trash, essentially. And my aim is that the various decades... Uh, that uh, such as 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, will be covered throughout this series. Everything from, for instance, early Joseph Kuo movies to 90s Taiwan Heroic Bloodshed, Chu and Ping movies, uh, Island of Fire, uh, Home Too Far, and what have you. Uh, it's uh, no set plan in that regard. That label, Taiwan Black Movies, is uh, named kind of after the 2005 uh, Huao Jian documentary that is called Taiwan Black Movies, that I coincidentally am reviewing and discussing certain key points uh, out of uh, during this debut episode. And, and I guess I gotta go personal on you before, first and explain how I found these movies and this side to my Asian cinema fandom, because these movies are distinctly different, in my view anyway, to Hong Kong cinema. The, the industry is of course intermingled, but not as such when it came to these movies at this time, late 70s, early 80s, that the Taiwan Black Moose documentary covers. Uh, and it's just my feeling, really, even if it's not a correct feeling that this is different to Hong Kong cinema. Now, now this era of a documentary covers uh, is uh, fascinating and different. And if a similarity could be drawn to Hong Kong cinema, it has to do with the hunger of the filmmakers. But... The Taiwan uniqueness about this era was about capital, uh, capitalizing on a on a trend and audience audience demand emotionally even, and that turned out to be a unique Taiwan feeling in my book anyway. So we'll talk more of that. First of all, contact information. Again, you are listening to Taiwan Noir on the Podcast on Fire network. The website where the show is located is podcastonfire.com. Our email address is podcastonfire at googlemail.com. You can access, uh, well, well, you can't really, you can't register on the forum currently, but those of you who have in the past uh, can uh, discuss on the forum, which is located at podcastonfire.com forward slash forum. There we have a an extensive members-only archive of cut conversations and exclusive movie reviews and even outtakes. So uh, you can extend your POF experience uh, that way and check out some silliness that went on behind the scenes, if you will. And when we do post exclusive content nowadays on the Podcast on Fire Network, it will be via the bonus episodes section on the website. So check out that 
category and section on the website. We are also on Facebook. Go to our fan page, like our page, which is facebook.com forward slash POF network. And we also have our discussion group where the majority of the discussion goes on. Just type in podcast on fire network in the Facebook search box and the group will pop up. And we're also on Twitter. Follow us there, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. I do writing of, for instance, Taiwanese movies on sogoodreviews.com and do video reviews of them on sleazykvideo.com. It's not the only uh, type of movies that I review. Review I re- review category three movies. I review horror movies from Hong Kong and Taiwan, and uh, and mixing it with uh, ninjas from IFD that occasionally used Taiwan movies as their source and cut Richard Harrison into into such movies, which was uh, all good fun. I also. Cover that stuff, discuss that stuff on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. You can listen to the podcast on Fire Network on iTunes. Leave a comment and leave a leave a rating if you like it. And listen to us on the go, stream us if you prefer that via Stitcher, stitcher.com. Download it to your computer or your smartphone. Add the Podcast on Fire Network and the various shows just by searching Podcast on Fire Network and you can add the various shows that way. So, on Taiwan Noir, credit for the name should go out to uh, Hero Never Dies on Facebook. Uh, So as thanks, uh, make sure his excellent blog of reviews uh, looks at purchases recently and odd Hong Kong plot descriptions from the back of DVDs gets a lot of hits. So visit a hero never dies dot blogspot.com golden ninja warrior chronicles the blog has chronicled some of these movies and their life via ifd as well as filmark uh, who essentially two outfits that preserve some of these taiwan black movies of the late 70s and early 80s as they bought them and uh, preserved them whole or cut Westerners into them and made ninja movies out of them, but they they were the ones that kind of were preserving these uh, these movies uh, throughout the year in the best ways. As prints from Taiwan are from this time anyway, I've destroyed or hard to find. Uh, they're definitely not catalogued as such, uh, like uh, like a film archive as such, an organized film archive, which is a shame. I ho- hope that will uh, change sometime. We will link to the Golden Ninja Warrior Chronicles posts about the Taiwan black movies and how they uh, made it into um, made it into the Spanish video market because this uh, this blog is based out of Spain so you can get a perspective out of Spain uh, looking at Taiwanese movies and IFD and Filmark movies uh, also Jack Jensen's blog and Leia Moder Sietibage that was mangled Danish uh, my Danish is rusty but essentially it means uh, an assassin looks back I think uh, that blog is described as a one-man militia against boring mainstream, and that blog contains fine documentation of uh, a collecting mentality, including for rare Taiwanese cinema. So uh, check out that blog as well. Anyway, back to the era. I will beat you over the head uh, with it, uh, uh, so you know where we are in the timeline. It all is essentially this. Taiwan black movies, uh, these uh, social realist movies, these female revenge movies. This is essentially a period from the late 70s, 79, and only a few years into the 80s, 82, 83. This new wave, if you will, is compromised of genre movies such as crime, social dramas, exploitation, gambling, female revenge. And while I am documenting my journey via this podcast, it's it's also 
a new journey for me as I view Taiwan Black movies for the first time to gain more knowledge for myself in order to spread the knowledge, to spread awareness of what this cool ass cinema is about. Uh, but really, I should stop right here and talk about how I ended up at this point, uh, really to give you a personal angle. And it's really, it's due to Joseph Lies, IFD Films and Arts, and even Thomas Tang's Filmark, who acquired quite a handful of Taiwanese movies for the treatment that meant they were cut and re-edited into ninja action vehicles or even modern thrillers, often starring the likes of Richard Harrison, Mike Abbott, Pierre Kirby, with directing credit given to Godfrey Ho over at IFD for quite a number of films. And while I didn't identify initially that, the, that these were cool Taiwanese movies, I guess it sank in when movies in the IFD library such as Deadly Darling, Fury and Red, Commander Fury, etc. turned out to be complete movies sans tampering. There was no Richard Harrison here. And uh, these were movies clearly deemed strong enough to be able to stand on their own two feet, on their own merits. Only thing needed for international distribution via IFD and Filmark was an English dub, a retitle often, but the original filmmakers were quite often respected to the degree that their credit remained. Only a westernized, uh, their names were credited into something more westernized, for instance. Director Yang Xia Yun was... Uh, Changed to Karen Yang, which is which is all fine. It was not Godfrey Ho that got the directing credit. That, that's the main point. Either many of these Taiwanese movies were favorites of the acquisition department at IFD and Filmark, or they were part of a package deal. And if so, what a package deal! So after realizing what these movies were, what they were originally called as well, and the fact that they spoke to me as cool genre movies, hard-hitting genre movies, gritty genre movies with charismatic stars and hungry filmmakers at the helm. The exploration has continued inside of IFD and even outside of them as the hunt for unaltered material that at IFD became ninja movies uh, was on. Again, tracking back to the blog Golden Ninja Warrior Chronicles, uh, some collectors like, like Jesus uh, and Jack Jensen have done very well in that regard finding these uh, original movies uh, working together and sharing information so good on you guys and thankfully also the library at ocean shores in hong kong contains some of these movies from this relatively short uh, period uh, appearing subtitled and the original language and, and the more the feeling of them sticking with me these movies uh, the more i felt that they were playing well to my sensibilities the more more it felt like a new cinema was discovered. A giddiness was there about the discovery that that really was set in place. And as these movies were not like the Hong Kong movies I've been devouring for the last 15 years or so, you always look for the fun and kicks as a writer, a movie watcher, etc. That is to be strived for. And as these movies are so lacking in documentation online, the documentary... Taiwan Black Movies and this podcast, Taiwan Noir, could perhaps play a little part in creating awareness as well as being part of my continued journey to a cool side of Asian cinema few know exists. So with that being said, the journey has barely started, I feel like. You're kind of at step one with me, so let's enter the world of Taiwan Black Movies, starting with the review and the discussion of key points in movies of Ho Chi Chan's 2005 documentary Taiwan Black Movies. 
welcome back and it's time to review Taiwan Black Movies and the plot or rather the description of uh, the documentary comes from Answer.com and Jason Buchanan Rowley. So documentary filmmaker Ho Chi Jan takes an illuminating look at the wave of lurid female Avenger flicks that flooded Asian screens in the early 1980s, while simultaneously exploring just how the socio-political climate of Taiwan at the time proved the perfect catalyst for such subversively political films. So a little bit of background. Interviewed by TaiwanCinema.com in 2006, director Ho Chi Jian was in his mid-twenties at the time of creating the documentary, but has been a movie buff since childhood, using it as a way of separating himself from reality a bit, like movies can and should work, as also described in the documentary. In his own words, it's as if I'm detached from reality and during that moment the world out there seemed full of possibilities and hope. While in the radio and television graduate program, as part of an assignment, Ho made the documentary Stardust 1574901, presented without human objects and uh, subjects rather, and deeming it to be about a detachment from society. Although still unclear about his future and purpose, encouragement came knocking in the form of winning the grand prize at the Taipei International Film Festival for Stardust, and the difficult path of being an independent director started to become more of a definite one to pursue. Working temporarily at the Chinese Taipei Film Archive, he discovered these violent crime films and female Avenger films reflecting the society and, pol and politics and realizing Despite them being commercial films, how much Taiwan cinematic history has neglected this era. Talking about motivation for initiating the project, Ho said, Now, it's hard to do a subject matter that no one's heard of, but the fact that the concept of Taiwan Black Moves was never, has never been done before on screen, not, not even on any publication, was enough to motivate me. Good man. Being a rather non-trendy subject and an outdated one, Ho prepared for a year, a year and a half, as he looked for sources of these films and uh, even for the handful of movies referenced in the film. He had to look for uh, for private film collectors uh, to see what they had, uh, drive-in theater operators, etc. But the hard work paid off as the documentary has been critically acclaimed and uh, even nominated at the 2005 Golden Horse Awards. So my notes and, re and review, it's, it's more... A mixture, I think, of uh, key points I wanted to bring up that are interesting as well as what I think of the documentary as a whole. So uh, it's a, it's more of the former rather than the latter. But uh, regardless, starting off with my viewpoints on it, having watched it uh, twice, actually, it's not the debut uh, debut uh, watch uh, of uh, this one. I, I've got a fine insight into the subject matter, but it's possibly due to lack of information, sources, funds, but the documentary only scrapes the surface and you wish it could have provided more, maybe there will be more. But again, what is here is illuminating. So let's go, go through some key movies and observations in the documentary that will um, uh, come with more, let's say, deeper and more elaborate thoughts as I tackle the movies uh, referenced um, uh, in the documentary in latter episodes because I do have some of them, not all of them. 
and one that I doesn't have, and I don't think many have, oh, no one. And I wish I could cover the jumping off point of the documentary and the movie that is that it starts with is the first arrow step, but it's um it's currently only available via uh, via make perhaps only a trailer or a really beat up print. It's incredibly worn, but if if I would had had a chance to see it in that quality, it would have sufficed as uh, viewer viewer material. I guarantee you that. One of the first uh, interview subjects is uh, therefore Chu Yanping, uh, the director of Island of Fire, Home Too Far, Golden's Queen's Commando. And he speaks of his script gig on the first air step, his fir- very first script gig on the Ulysses Ao directed crime drama. U- Ulysses Ao's uh, other Chinese name or other AK is uh, Tsai Yangmin. And he's a versatile director, by the way, of uh, the likes of The Country of Beauties, AK Island Warriors, and the Wuxia Be Careful Sweetheart. And the first arrow step is this uh, story of a criminal trying to do good, but it's uh, it's based on a true story. Or is it as a story, actually? Uh, <laughs> as, as a story that uh, is revealed at the end of the documentary, it might not be true. But anyway, it's the story of a criminal trying to go, do good, but finding it harder to walk that path. And it's spoken of this movie, the first arrow step, as a birth to a genre and a fresh insight into the dark underworld, where even... Chu Yanping wasn't recognizing his own local cinema as it was so stylish and unusually shocking and frank with its uh, violence. Director Ao was even brought before what's referred to as the Garrison Command to explain his actions, the movie's intent, uh, the justification of it in order for the movie to be passed, which it was either by a foreigner or a local back from Germany in what could be described as really an open-minded decision. If And if I sound a little undecided, listeners, the, the subtitle translation of a documentary sometimes hinder information to get through uh, fully, uh, it should be stated. Furthermore, the documentary talks of um, Taiwan of the 70s undergoing changes like withdrawing from the United Nations and it broke up diplomatic relations with the US and Japan and also had a growing economy. But within it, a certain unrest, as uh, film critic Edmund Wong said and described it, it was really the best of times and worst of times. The director Yang Sha Yun, female director of uh, The Lady Avenger, talks of Taiwan society having an aura of being conservative. So when something noticeable like stunning sights in cinema happened, it became an event in the mind of the public. Her process, filmmaking process, when creating what's referred to often in the documentary as social realist or female revenge movies would be would be akin to looking at newspaper headlines a la the 19th trend of making category free movies in Hong Kong. And you're using those stories as a jumping off point off point to make more about provocative sensational script. And it's interesting to hear someone like uh Yung Sheng film companies, uh Xiang Yi Sheng uh, talk, uh, talk in a movie about uh, his role during this time and he's the producer of uh, several of the movies we will be covering in this series including The Lady Avenger, Girl with a Gun, Devil Returns, etc. And it's cool to hear him being perfectly frank uh, saying that making these movies were akin to satisfying market demand to, to try and make a dent in the market. They weren't necessarily out to make important statements all the time. And Film critic Robert Chen, which is, by the way, one of the best interview subjects in the movie, is is talking along those same lines as uh, as uh, Xiang, 
and he talks of his teenage self at the time on watching these movies for the first time feeling the excitement uh, of uh, something like on the society files of shanghai queen bee the lady avenger as they were they were, they were sexy movies they were violent movies he, he rode on that feeling that, uh, that that wave if you will as an audience member and it's really cool to be drawn to cinema in a basic primal way i mean i can still relate to that in terms of my fandom of uh, these kind of movies the, the other main key social realist movie that would kick off all of this even though it came two years later after uh, after uh, the first error step uh, it would be a uh, one Xu Xin's On the Society File of Shanghai, starring Luke Xiufan or uh, Liu Xiaofen. Adapted from so-called scar literature, literature from mainland China, uh, a late 70s type of uh, writing concerning uh, political suffering under the ruling forces of uh, the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Robert Chan thought the movie was aiming more to be political propaganda to expose the mainland's dark secrets, but the, the movie took a different turn, or at least the marketing made it take a different turn, uh, because it seemed to have little to do with with that, with the political statements, and more about sensation and pushing its leading lady's sexiness. And that uh, poster is uh, is a classic example of that, with uh, Luxufan not naked, but in a in a wet shirt and i think certain shots of that poster have you can see nipples underneath and certain you cannot so it's pure exploitation in a way and thus really a path was created for the female revenge movie as the movie on the society file of shanghai contained elements of that and it's a very interesting progress and insight into making your business and content thrive this i i have no i, I like exploitation in that regard uh liu xiaofan Luke xiaofan is interviewed in the movie briefly in the documentary briefly uh, she also recalls some of the impact her self-stabbing scene had on audiences in the film and uh, also talked of the lack of glamour in uh, on the society file of shanghai where everything was really down to earth and uh, dressed down and gray including in the costumes so um that, that was an interesting uh, interesting uh, design decision, if you will. And obviously during this time, it, it was a popular genre and therefore it hit a stride due to local demand and really became a factory-like process at the time. Uh, movies seemed to be greenlit based on the star, for instance, again, Liu Xiaofen, and an outline, really. And, and then the short filming and post-production would just go into high gear, including you know, writing script during shooting, as uh, Yang Xiaoyun explains, I, I think in regards to The Lady Avenger, uh, starring Luke Xufan. It, it's not really deep issues or deep explanations we're talking about here in terms of trends. I mean, genres have their time. Melodramas in Taiwan cinema, where Bridget Lin and what have you, had their time. Action movies, kung fu movies had their time. And social realist female revenge movies had their time. And there's no reason to feel less enthusiastic when it's about it, when it's that simple, when you break it down. It, it, it was a temporary trend connecting a lot or very little to the current times, depending on the view you were. And, and, and that, that's fine, that's still exciting, even though the uh, the output is um, as a matter of fact limited if you if you if you had it all it, i don't think uh, there was a whole lot but uh, what there is is really really cool uh chu yinping uh, talks of um the, ga the gangsters being involved in the movie industry and uh, sensing that there's a buck to be made and uh, 
and they showed muscle for instance when it came to which movies to be prioritized during the hectic post-production if you will during editing and all of that and uh, they they showed muscle to the extent that violence was not uncommon in and around the filming and the studios and what have you uh, there's no huge elaboration on the gambling trend but uh, that happened too during during this era you know piles of films uh, concerning gambling i mean it was the same in hong kong uh, at this time uh, at least you had them but the gambling trend really took off la later in the 80s uh, in hong kong via movies by wong jing but you know at any rate it, it was a quick era this and uh, where, where critics say the cinema always came to almost came to a dead end as well uh, but there's no Huge elaboration on that. I, I will talk a little bit about the, the problems with the documentary in uh, in a short bit. Uh, on a personal note, any footage from these films in the documentary, you know, from uh, from uh, film reels or trailers or these resource uh, shot off a screen, even you know, that, that's a revelation. And uh, especially movies by uh, Chester Wong, like uh, Queen Bee, seems to be only <laughs> available in very sorry states uh, that who had to shoot them off a screen so they're almost blood red the way he shoots them off a the screen which is a shame but it's great to see i mean i have some of uh, or at least one of chester wong's movies commander fury it's called at the ifd but the documentary overall lacks a a a, a, a sense of uh, narrative it doesn't have any narration i mean we do get an appreciation for the time via the interview subjects uh, that's a very great positive the first half in particular is uh, the best in that regard and again i mean it's a shame we still don't have extensive documentation on this era even after the documentary d despite getting this fine insight into an unexamined unexamined era and maybe ho was limited to what you could do but you wish someone maybe even he could could, could get a chance to elongate this examination into something more epic maybe individual documentaries on 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 one movie you know or certain key movies only rather than uh, trying to cover the whole era the the talk of uh, censorship uh, in the movie is fascinating as uh, judging uh, was was made using essentially uh, bells that were rung whenever someone in the jury if you will objected to something improper uh, ne negative influence so uh, it's not elaborated on and it, it they don't hint that the movie is being cut extensively but uh, uh, and perhaps i'm not reacting uh, towards that fact that they weren't cut extensively because i'm i'm usually watching uh, essentially an overseas version they did sell these movies overseas to blacks of japan and greece or what have you and overseas censorship was not as much of a problem generally and they, they, there's a story that presumably took place a few years into the, the era where government and professors and researchers wanted to get more involved and discuss uh, these uh, disgusting trends as they hit the fever pitch uh, to discuss if these movies were suitable or not for for the public but uh, it, it's funny one uh, one journalist essentially asks a professor have you seen the movies no i haven't well what the hell are you doing here then so you get an example of uh, people trying to be um, trying to be important when they can't uh, can't back it up if you will but the, the filmmakers to kind of evade avoid censorship brought brought in issues of patriotism in movies to act as an umbrella to make it okay in the, in the eyes of the judges if you will so there, there was a mix here of uh, patriotism sex and violence that could get through 
But uh, Robert Chen, uh, again, makes an interesting point about the fact that many of these movies weren't really trying to showcase Taiwan distinctly, that they were even the Taiwanese and were even set in Hong Kong at times. They, they, they were made overall though, as neutral and uh, in a way that wouldn't uh, alienate foreign audiences, for instance, but also to elude censorship, to play down the Taiwan consciousness, if you will, of the issues of the time they were made. So certain audiences certainly could read into it, but it wasn't distinctly said that this is about now. Uh, there is focus later in the film uh, on one of the better movies uh, from this time, uh, Girl with a Gun, which is a pretty literal remake of Abel Ferrara's Miss Fortify, which the movie doesn't mention, actually. Uh, Robert Chen talks of the structure of the film um, uh, in connection to the fact that the movies were neutral and the Taiwanese, if you will. Uh, but it's it's a case here, when we're flung into this uh, section, it's a it's a case of us being flung into it without much of a transition by the director of the documentary. I, I mean, we, it's great to see the examination of Girl with a Gun as it's it's played out in flashback in the Taiwan version. Um, and uh, Robert Chen said that there's no real reason to look for the Taiwan consciousness in the movie. It's it simplified the psychology in the movie and that's more valid and even realistic, which is a, a clever point. Nation and society stays outside, essentially. Despite, you know, hurt is is there, but that's personal. Rape is there, that's personal. And revenge is there, that's also pers personal. Despite this being set in so in society and uh, feels like social realism. I mean, the movie and other movies were exaggerated in, in style, though. I mean, even movies like On the Society File of Shanghai had over-the-top violence that you could argue couldn't connect really to, to reality as such, so... And, and, and it jumps from Robert talking of men's in a state of mind and then to, back to Yang Xiaoyun telling an anecdote about Lady Avenger. I mean, again, very flimsy editing. I didn't feel it was focused enough at times. During the latter sections, it, it features quite a bit of footage from 1979's Gunshot at 6 in the morning. And it talks of political issues uh, and the, the state of society in Taiwan at the time. And it dominates for, for a bit during the last 15 minutes. Uh, and it's interesting that overall they, they continue to echo this feeling of these genre movies being escapist entertainment that they, they weren't necessarily corresponding to exactly what was going on in society now and uh, people wanted to get away from that uh, the, uh, but what people were starting to do in uh, in Taiwan in reality I mean when they weren't watching movies if you were was starting to question the government more and the ruling party more and uh, there was op opposition forming and uh, I don't know how this connects to to the movie gunshot at six in the morning because there's a lot of footage from it so, but they don't make it clear about uh, the plot in that movie i mean the, the main section is uh, is that is shown is an execution uh, the lead up to an execution so i don't know exactly how it connects but regardless it's not bad to, to mention key events leading to essentially democracy in Taiwan, such as the pro-democracy demonstration known as the Kaohsiung Incident in 1979. Um, but, but, but still, the movies were still escapism overall. They, they don't forget that fact. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not the best one to talk about the political state of Taiwan at the time. I, I think it was interesting to mention that they were in a state of change leading to, uh, to more of a democracy. But the uh, 
again, as I mentioned, these this era could could be considered to be very short, from 1979 to 1982 or or 83, circa, and it, it declined quick. I mean, it hit it hit its fever pitch quick, and then audiences' tastes change, which is what happens. And introduction of Hong Kong movies. Uh, Started get uh, they started get uh, be seen more frequently in Taiwan and uh, government also cracked down in some way on the social realist movies but it's a bit vague why in the movie it doesn't really I, I didn't get it fully so I might have missed it but it's one of the cases where the documentary feels a bit vague but I, I overall recommend it it's uh, it it's uh, I mean it's especially the first half is fascinating because it's these movies that I've loved and now some someone a very young guy has sat down to talk about it which is very admirable so um I, it's recommended if you can if you can find it and uh, and all of that so for episode two since we have the movie available uh, to us we are looking at one that kickstarted a lot, especially for leading lady uh, Liu Xiaofen. And it's Wang Xu Xin's mentioned movie on the Society File of Shanghai from 1981. And hopefully I will have, will have with me a co-host for episode 2. I've been uh, talking about uh, having someone on the show that hasn't been on the show before, but has certainly been mentioned. So, thank you for listening to this debut episode of Taiwan Noir. Now keep the bus going about... Since there is a slight buzz out there, keep that alive. Keep Taiwan cinema alive, if you will, because this part of its history certainly is hasn't felt very alive, and it deserves more. And I, I'm gonna try and give it my all, and I hope that will come across, and that it will create awareness and and even desire to you listeners to pursue this side of Taiwan cinema. We live in an era where most of this isn't available officially, but it's, it is available on the internet, and uh, that's all I'm going to say officially on the show, but do contact me if, you, if you'd like uh, some, um, some access to these movies, if you will. So, uh, before I sign off, short contact information again. You've been listening to Taiwan Noir on the Podcast on Fire network. The website, podcastonfire.com. The uh, contact information, email, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Check out the forum, podcastonfire.com forward slash forum. Can't register at the moment, but if you are registered before, you can check out the members-only stuff. But also, if there's uh, exclusive stuff to be posted, exclusive extra stuff that we aren't covering in our normal episodes, for instance, during Taiwan Noir, we will post it as a bonus episode on the website, not available on iTunes or Stitcher. So keep an eye out on podcastonfire.com. We are on Facebook, like our fan page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. And also come into the discussion group. Uh, search Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search box and you will see the link to the group. We are also on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. Follow my exploits that includes Taiwan Cinema on sogoodreviews.com and sleazykvideo.com. And I'm also on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Subscribe to the Podcast on Fire Network on iTunes, including Taiwan War is in that uh, feed. Leave us a comment, rate us if you like the show, and also listen to us if you prefer it that way on the go. Stream us via Stitcher, download it from Stitcher.com to your computer, or hit up your respective app stores for your respective uh, phones like the iPhone to download the free application to your phone. When you're inside the application, type Podcast on Fire Network and you can add each respective show that way. So I thank you for listening to the first episode of Taiwan Noir, and this is Kennedy signing off. Bye-bye.